welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Bible or your Bible app, uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. And as we read it here in a moment, there's a, a line in the, in the passage we're going to read that might sound a little familiar, uh, given what we just read in the book of Isaiah. And so, so as you're turning there, I just kind of want to share, there's some passages of Scripture that all of, God is God, all of the Scripture is God-breathed, and all of it is inspired by God, but there seems to be some passages of Scripture to the one who preaches that just seem to, he- to weigh a little heavier uh, than others and are so theologically rich and have so much within just the few words that we're going to read here that it's very humbling and, it's, and to, to preach such an amazing passage is like, man, who am I uh, to, to bring these words before us? But I suppose, you know, God has used a donkey to speak, so I suppose he could, he could use a, a man like me. Um, so nonetheless, uh, let's read together the book of Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we open up your word and as we just read, Lord, I pray that you would now open up all of our hearts, Lord, to receive it, Lord, and to make application for our lives. Lord, give me the right words to say um, as I have prepared. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So see, it's just one of those passages. It's like, wow, we just read it, and it's like, man, we could just go home and meditate on that, right? It's, it's, it's so rich. Uh, some of us, uh, you may be aware of the fact that this, uh, verses 6 to 11, many scholars say that this was actually a, an old hymn that the early church would actually sing when they gathered. And so these words actually possibly precede Paul writing this, and he's just simply using this hymn as to make application of what he's saying that the church ought to be united and such. Um, it's not, we don't know if it was, but there are many scholars who would say that this was an old hymn that the early church used, uh, noted as the Carmen Christi, or the hymn to Christ. So we're going to focus on verses 4 to 11, but the reason why I wanted to read 
verses 1, th- one, two, th- uh, 1, 2, and 3 as well, was just to kind of give us some context uh, to, what, to why Paul is using, to why Paul is, is talking, uh, is why he's saying these things about Christ. So the letter to Philippians, as we, as we may know, is kind of one of Paul's more positive uh, letters. He's kind of cheering the church on and, and um, encouraging them and what they're doing right. There are other letters that Paul writes that are not so positive. Uh, like if you know the book of Galatians or First and Second Corinthians, he of course says some encouraging things to them, but he's really writing, the purpose of his writing is to correct them in something really big. But this, this uh, book of Philippians is, is much more positive. And so towards the end of chapter 1, kind of leading up to what we just read, he's exhorting the church to stay, to, to stand firm in one spirit and to be united. Why? For the sake of the gospel. And there are few things that can harm the church or can harm the church's witness more than if she's divided within herself. And so Paul wants to avoid this in the church of Philippi. He exhorts them to be unified and have the same spirit. But, of course, we at times, we're still on this side of heaven, as it's said, and we possess what's called the flesh. And we at times can become self-absorbed. And with many of our own desires and our own interests, that it's easy if we focus on that, it's easy to lose focus on God and his kingdom. Uh, the, the temptation was no more reality for us than it was for them. And it goes back to, if you remember in James chapter 4, verse 1, where James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not, is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your members? So your flesh. The reason why we have, why, the, why a church would have so many quarrels and conflicts it's pretty much always because, some, because there's just following of the flesh rather than following God. So look with me now again to verse 4 in Philippians chapter 2 as we kind of walk through this passage and, and try to uh, extrapolate what God would, would have us to take from it. So verse 4, Paul writes, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So we know this is right. Right? We know that we ought not to simply look at our own interests and equate what we want to what God wants, right? especially at the expense of someone else. And I'm not talking, and Paul certainly is not talking about contending for the faith or standing up for what the Word teaches. He's not talking about that because at that point, it's not my own personal preferences. It's the truth. It's God's command, not just my personal preference. And so obviously, and in, in Paul many times would stand up for the faith and, and would stand up for what God says. So we're not talking about, you know, oh, just you have to capitulate every time that there, the truth is at stake. That's not what we're talking about. I think we can tell the difference between the two, right? We're talking about when we end up equating our personal preferences with what God commands. When we, when we want what we want, I have my preference, I want this to be this way, when it's God's word doesn't really say one way or the other. It's, not, it's just your own personal preference. And I want what I want regardless of the cost, even, sadly, if it costs me fellowship with a brother or sister. So and what happens when it gets really hard to count the other as more significant or more important than yourself? How does the Apostle Paul deal with this? How does he deal with this question? Does he simply just kind of urge them on, you know, you, you got to be unified. You got to just pick your own self up by your, boot, by your own bootstraps and you got to be unified. You got to do it by your own strength. Well, as we see, he does no such thing. 
Rather, he points them to Christ in a most profound way. Why, Paul, must we consider others more important than ourselves? Why must I consider the interests of others? Why can't I just only focus on what I want? Because in becoming a man, this is exactly what Christ, the Son of God, did for his own. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he says, hey, let me tell you what was the attitude of Jesus in the incarnation. The incarnation is just a big theological word that simply means when God took on flesh. When Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven and became a man. So let me tell you what Jesus' attitude was when he became a man. And we glory in the fact that the Son of God became a man and took sin upon himself and suffered and died under the righteous and holy wrath of God the Father so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We glory in that. Amen. That's the greatest truth that could ever be told. And also, have you ever thought, how does this or how ought this to impact how I think in my relations with others? We see here in the scripture the greatest act of humility that could ever have possibly been imagined. So let's receive some perspective regarding how we ought to think of it when we feel like seeking our own interest instead of others. When we want to push others aside and I want to do it my way. Or you want to maybe forget what someone else thinks and I want to do it my way. Again, we're not talking about when God clearly lays out a prescription for certain things. That's not what we're talking about here. When we make it a habit of doing this, of I want what I want regardless of the cost, when we make it a habit of doing this, we will inevitably begin to think that our way and God's way are one and the same. But they're not. Verse 6. So let's look at Jesus' attitude in taking on flesh. Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We see here that Jesus existed in the form of God. So this means he possessed the divine nature that only belongs to God himself. He always existed before creation. When he was born to the Virgin Mary, it's not that the Son of God now comes into existence. No, that's just when the Son of God became a man and took on flesh. And I I can't imagine the scripture describing somebody having the form of God and it not actually be God himself. So it's clearly that... Paul is saying here that Jesus existed with the Father before the creation of the world as God. And he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does this mean? Uh, The word grasp, I'm not a Greek expert, but the word grasped in the Greek, uh, can we, when we hear the word grasp, we kind of think like to take something, right? Like to take it away, to rob, which is one connotation that the word can mean in the Greek. But It's used only one time in the New Testament, here. And it can also mean to hold on to, or to retain, or to hold fast. Right? Like when we we sing the old hymn, He will hold me fast, God will hold on to me. And so instead, Christ, instead of holding on to his divine privileges, he does this in verse 7. But emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. By emptying himself, this means he laid aside certain divine privileges. Other uh, other renderings, like in the King James, it says he made himself of no reputation. 
So I have to be very careful here. He did not lay aside his deity altogether in that he was no longer God or he no longer possessed the divine nature which only God possesses. This is not what happened. But there was something veiled in a sense, becoming in the form of a man. Uh, for example, like we, we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when, he, uh, when they record the occasion where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and then he's transfigured before him. In other words, his glory is literally shown, which before this, before this moment, it hadn't. It was something was concealed, but he still possesses the divine nature. So instead of refusing to give up certain divine privileges, which he possesses in heaven, he chooses to become a man. He willingly submits to the will of the Father and does something that had never been done before. God, the creator of the universe, the great I am, enters time and space on this fallen planet in the form of actual human flesh. He didn't empty himself completely of the, of the divine nature, but he merely added humanity to his deity. He enters into this world, which is literally full of people whom he created, right? Colossians 1 says that all things that were created were created through him, through Jesus. And so he enters this world, which is full of people that he literally created, which according to Romans chapter 1, though, have taken all of his good gifts and simply have taken them and hoarded them and refused to even acknowledge the giver and give thanks. He chooses to become a man on this world that has rejected him. And the idea of God becoming a man is something that many outside of Christianity, many other uh, religions or any, uh, many other faith traditions simply can't fathom this. It's a huge stumbling block uh, that God himself would become a man and subject himself to the limitations that inevitably, be, that inevitably come upon you when you take upon flesh. Experiencing things like hunger, thirst, fatigue, sickness, pain, loneliness. I mean, have you ever thought of that, that God experienced this as a man, being hungry, thirsty, lonely, being sick, being tired? Amazing. And that God would do this is, is incomprehensible in a way. So the scripture, we know that the scripture teaches that God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent, again, is just a big word, but it literally just means God transcends us. He's above us. He's not like us. Like what Isaiah 55 says, when God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. As high as the heaven is above earth, so are my ways above your own. I'm not like you, is kind of what God is saying. In Job 38 to 41, if you ever want to to really be confronted with the fact that God is so much higher than us, read those four chapters, Job 38 to 41, when God asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? I mean, it doesn't get more humbling than reading those four chapters. So God transcends us. But the other truth of the scripture is that God is also imminent, that God is close to us, in that Jesus was given the name Emmanuel, right? Which means what? God with us. So the transcendent God condescends himself and humbles himself to be close to us. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So if it wasn't enough for God to come to earth as a man and subject himself to all of the, the, all of the pain and sufferings and the, the, just, the, the, short com- or just the, the experiences of this life, of living as a man, everything that comes along with being a human, though he was without sin, as Hebrews chapter 4 shows us. So he becomes a man, but yet he doesn't just kind of ride off into the sunset living a jolly old life as in 120 years and lives this priestly, kingly life and, and uh, you know, in life of luxury and everything. No, he actually allows himself to be killed. Are you kidding me? Wow. Obedient to the point of death. He allows those whom he created. Think about this. He allows men who he actually created and has poured out his common grace upon them every day of their rebellious lives. He allows them to murder him. But not only that, again, if that wasn't enough for God to be born into this world and allow himself to be murdered by people whom he created, but he subjects himself to physical torture and death on a cross, a most awful way of suffering and capital punishment. Why is this significant? Why does Paul kind of make the distinction here? He doesn't just say he, he becomes obedient to the point of death. But he continues on and he says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, or the death that one dies on a cross. So some background here about crucifixion. As you may know, the Romans did not invent crucifixion. It's not that the Romans invented it. It, it existed before the Romans. But as it's been said by many historians, the Romans kind of perfected crucifixion, if nothing else. So some of the horrors of crucifixion, there was, it was the, the most dreaded thing you could possibly imagine in these times because you were like posted on a billboard. You were, many times, those who were crucified were stripped of all their clothes, completely naked, completely exposed. And you're, it's not, a, it, it's not they don't just hang you up on a high cross just because they wanted to, but they hang you high so that the whole village or the, all those around could see you and could see your nakedness, and could mock you, and spit on you, and throw things at you, and curse you, and you're just on display for all to see. And you're, it's like you're posted on a billboard that says, this is what happens when you defy Rome. You want to cross us? You want to come against us? This is your fate. And also, perhaps the greatest dread, specifically for many Jewish people, of the idea of being crucified was that you almost never got a proper burial. Many times, we know this didn't happen with Christ because we know Joseph of Arimathea took down the body, provided a tomb. So what I'm about to say, we know didn't happen to Christ. But with almost everybody that was crucified, you were not given a proper burial. And many times your body was just left to hang there so that animals and birds could come and just eat your flesh. And then they would dispose of the bones later. That's it, it doesn't get any more gruesome than that. Um, your body was just devoured. So then the question becomes, well, what then of the resurrection of the dead? My body is completely disposed of. And so it was just a terrible and horrifying thing. And God came to earth and subjected himself to this kind of treatment? And so the reason why Paul says this is, if the Son of God, if God becomes a man and subjects himself to this, How can we not likewise humble ourselves for the sake of others? That's his point. And, you know, in trying to teach humility, like, to our children or, you know, trying to 
trying to get the idea of cro- across that, you know, to put others before yourselves and think of others before yourself. I can't think of any more meaningful way to teach this than to simply try to show Philippians chapter 2, this passage we're looking at. I mean, it doesn't get any more clear um, why we ought to be humble or, or to just cut to our hearts that how could we not be when confronted with, with this truth? And so as we know, of course, though, there are not only the physical sufferings of Christ, what he suffered on the cross, as we just saw, but in a sense, there was some, something that happened between the Father and the Son uh, at least for a time, as he bore the sins of all who would believe in him. And he cries out, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this, of course, was the worst aspect of the cross for the Son. Why he's praying in the garden, Father, if this cup pass from me, if, if there be any other way, please let this cup pass from me. But as we know, there is no other way. There was no other way and still exists no other way for you or for anyone else on this planet to be reconciled to God, but through his Son, the Christ who suffered in the place of sinners, as uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that he who, made, uh, he who knew no sin, Jesus, who was sinless, perfect, he who knew no sin was made to become sin for us. So while Jesus was on that cross, God the Father did not see his perfect Son, on there. He wasn't punishing his perfect son. He was punishing you. All of us who trust in him took upon our sin upon himself and all who would trust in him. The sin debt that we owe, that everybody owes, was paid for on the cross. And it must be paid for just like any other good judge. Can't just let some, some uh, a lawless uh, lawbreaker go free just because, well, I'm just, I'm gracious, I'm, I'm gracious and, and I'm a loving judge. Well, that, we expect more from our earthly judges. How much more do we expect that from the heavenly judge? That your sin must be paid for, and it can only be paid for by turning to the one who died on the cross and who satisfied God's wrath. So all sin will eventually be paid for. Either it was paid for on the cross by Christ as your substitute, and you turn to him and acknowledge that, and once your sin is paid for, just like on that day, when you do stand before God, God won't see a, an ugly, sinful man or woman as we are before him uh, without Christ. He'll see his perfect son and the work that he achieved on the cross. So if you don't know him, I would urge you, based on the scripture, based on, on, uh, on God's word, to turn to him and to... Uh, and you will receive forgiveness of your sins and turning to him and repenting of your sins. Verse 9, uh, verses 9 to 11. So because of all of this, because of what Christ has done in coming to earth as a man, because of all of this, now we see his exaltation in verses 9 to 11. Paul writes, he concludes, For this reason also, or your translation may say, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember our scripture from earlier we read just a few minutes ago, and this might sound familiar. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, which says, 
I have sworn by myself, the word, so God speaking, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. So it seems that Paul is quoting this about Christ. And nobody would argue that when Isaiah's writing, he's speaking of Yahweh, the Lord. And now Paul is attributing this to Christ. Clearly, Christ is God. If the New Testament is true, which it is, Christ is Yahweh. Christ is God. And one of the most offensive things, uh, I was talking with somebody out, uh, about this the other day, um, or I think we made, uh, it was brought up in, in a meeting we had a couple weeks ago, maybe on a Wednesday night. One of the most offensive things, if not the most offensive thing, about Christianity, the reason why Christians have been persecuted and continue to be persecuted to this day um, in many places of the world is that the Bible teaches that there is only one way. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one God. There's only one mediator. There's only one way to be right with God. And it's Christ, his son. Uh, references John 14.6, Romans 6.23, Acts 4.12, just to name a few. I mean, we could go on all day with references to the fact that Christ is the only way. All men and women, whether in heaven, on earth now, or have already passed on, will ultimately bow and confess Christ to the glory of God the Father. And it's funny, you know, some will simply call men to, to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Um, I would... I would assert that you can't make Jesus the Lord of your life any more than you can make your lungs take in oxygen. You already breathe in oxygen. There's no need to make yourself do it. In the same way, Jesus is already Lord of your life. You can do nothing apart from him. One may resist that truth, like Romans 1 says, that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We might a lost man or someone who doesn't know Christ might battle against that and not acknowledge it, but one cannot escape him. Whether you are a beggar on the street corner in the inner city somewhere or you're the president of the United States, you will bow to Christ. It's just a matter of whether you will do so willingly by the grace of God, by the work he's done in your heart, and you do it gratefully or in judgment. There's an old show, I don't know if they make any new episodes anymore, but there's an, a, a show that I, I liked to watch called Undercover Boss. Um, it's the, the premise of the, some of you are laughing, so I know, some of you know the show. The premise of the show, and the premise of the show is that kind of the owner of a large company or the CEO, kind of the, t the head honcho of the, of the company, in order to kind of understand what really goes on in the nuts and bolts of his company or, or her company, will condescend himself or herself to go down to the lowest level and they put on a disguise so that others don't know who they are and now they, they're, they're trained by another employee of the company and, so, and they don't know who they are. They don't know that they're walking and talking with the owner of the company, the guy who writes their check. Um, they don't know that and so, so that's the idea of the show for them to get an idea of what really goes on in the company and you know, kind of what I liked most about the show was that at the end of the show, those who, who worked with the, the disguised owner or CEO of the show, they would, they would be brought into his or her office and now kind of the veil comes down and now they're dressed up in a suit and tie and now they see them for who they are. And, um, 
You know, they're not disguised anymore. Now they know, wow, this person I was with was actually the owner of the company. Ooh, I hope I treated him well. And so one of the things I liked about it was that sometimes when you watch the show, you would see kind of a riff between the disguised owner, the undercover boss, and somebody he's training, or maybe they disrespected the undercover boss. And as I'm watching it, I, I, I remember I would think, wow, they'll know who this person is soon enough. They'll be made known. It will be revealed. And so this is a tiny microscopic picture of Christ's condescension, of what Christ did. It's, it's, it's kind of almost like, I wish I didn't even use the illustration because it's like so it fails. But just to kind of try to, to give a, a microscopic picture of what, of what happened. Um, so going back to where we began. Uh, this is why, this is why Paul exhorts us to humble ourselves and count others as more significant than ourselves. Um, he uses the, the old hymn, that, as we said, the Carmen Christi that might have preceded him, the, what we just looked through, to show, I mean, what greater truth could I share other, you know, for us to humble themselves other than this? That the Son of God humbled himself to the point of death as we saw and to die in the most humiliating way, to just basically be, be put on a billboard in, in shame. And so if he does this, then what right do we have to withhold humility when relating to others, as if we're justified or if, as if you're justified in your own pride? Because the Son of God did not take that route. So it's kind of, you know, uh, to share another scripture here, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, um, as I mentioned, it's kind of a letter that Paul is writing <laughs> to, to correct a lot of things, not necessarily to encourage them in what they're already doing. And in chapter 6, he writes to them to correct them because they're so divided that they actually are taking each other to court before worldly judges to try to settle matters that's going on within the church. I mean, unfathomable. <clears throat> And thus, the name of God is being dragged through the mud. And so the worldly judge, you know, the world is saying, like, look, these guys can't even get their act together. They're just so divided. They fight amongst each other. Who are they to tell me what to do? I mean, you guys got to get your act together before you tell me how to live my life. See what a joke that the Christ followers are. And, but Paul says, this ought not be. Why not you rather be wrong? Why not you just rather be defrauded than to allow God's name to be drugged through the mud just for your own pride or your own preferences? Because at the end of the day, as we see in Philippians chapter 1, it's not about ourselves. It's not about us. It's about the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, be of one mind, as Paul writes uh, at the end of chapter 1 of Philippians. So I'll end here with a quote from Martin Luther about this passage. If Christ, who was true God by nature, has humbled himself to become servant of all, how much more should such action befit us who are of no worth and are by nature children of sin, death, and the devil? So Jesus, existing in the form of God, actually can humble himself because he's so high. He condescends himself to earth. What a amazing act of humility but kind of martin luther's point here is like when we do it it's not even like that because we're on each other's level we're all none of us is more human than the other i mean yeah maybe we might say oh he's 
you know, has some high office and I'm just so-and-so. But at the end of the day, we're all, we all possess the same form as there's a form of God and there's a form of man. We're not, you know, for me to kind of humble myself to another person, is, it still lacks, it still falls very short to what Christ did because he actually humbled himself and came down. And when we do it, it's just we're kind of put in our rightful place. So may God help us to, to have the mind of Christ in humbling ourselves as, as he did. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what has been revealed. And how can we not thank you for, for coming to earth, Jesus, as a man and taking on flesh so that now you are the high priest who doesn't who, who doesn't lack sympathy towards us because you have been tempted in all ways, but yet without sin. And help us to, to have this same mind in ourselves, which was yours, that, Lord, that you didn't, you didn't see it fit to, to hold on to the divine privileges that you had. Lord, but you came to earth as a man, and we thank you for that, and help us to, to be willing to humble ourselves to our fellow man as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.